Um, an inevitable part of my work as a teacher are meetings. <laughs> I have several in the week, and I must say they range in quality and productivity. Um, a large part of that is to do with who they're with. <laughs> if they're with people from within the department um, that I work, they're, they're usually pretty good. Uh, we know each other well, and we've been a team for many years now. We know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and you come away with things to do, but, but you, get, you feel motivated to get the job done for the, for the sake of the department and the students. Other meetings can have a greater sense of foreboding. Uh, these would be with members of the senior leadership team. Uh, rightly or wrongly, um, you anticipate you're going to be told you're not doing enough, or you're doing it wrong, or something that's never been done before is now crucial and has to be done yesterday. Some of us here may now be retired, and you can, might be sitting there thinking smugly, well, thank goodness I don't have to put up with that anymore. But you're forgetting you're a Baptist. And we love to have a good meeting, don't we? The church meeting is just the tip of the iceberg. But let's take the church meeting. Is that something you look forward to? Great. It's been too long. I can't wait to see what God's wanting to, to do with us here at Brighton Road. Or is it more a case of, gosh, is it that time already? I've got to go, I suppose. Or maybe I could be accidentally double booked that night. The fact is, we come to a meeting with all sorts of feelings, anticipations, presumptions, ideas, all sorts of baggage. And it can be the same when it comes to meeting with God. We know we should spend time with God, meet with him, walk with him as Adam did in the garden. But with this side of the fall, and quite frankly, it's not always that easy. I want to share with you just some ideas about barriers to us meeting with God. It's not an exhaustive list. Uh, we are a creative fallen bunch. And there are many ways, many walls that we build, but I should just like to highlight four. The first of these is guilt. Sometimes it can be our awareness of the sin in our lives which prevents us from meeting with God. Adam and Eve hid from God because they knew they had done wrong and were guilty and now felt that shame. A writer I happened upon when researching for this, a chap called Richard E. Sistma, has written a useful essay on guilt and shame. And uh, you'll forgive me, I shall probably, I'll be reading a few um, extracts from his essay. Because quite simply, he encapsulates what I'm trying to say much better than I could. He says, the terms guilt and shame can be understood in two ways. Objectively, Guilt refers to our culpability as people who have broken God's law, which results in punishment, death, and God's judgment. Subjectively, guilt is experienced as the burden of responsibility for transgressing a moral boundary. We feel it as pangs of conscience, as blame or self-accusation, when we know the offence is our own fault. Guilt is the inexcusability we feel for our sins. Objectively, shame is like pollution in our relationship with God. The uncleanness of our sin clashes with God's holiness. It is the dishonour and marring of the image of God caused by our sin. 
Subjectively, shame is our sense of defilement in the presence of the Holy God. It is our painful realisation that as sinners, we are naked before God. Unwanted visibility and the desire to conceal are at the heart of the shame response. On hearing this, it is easy to understand how it's a barrier to meeting with God. In a very real way, it was our sin naturally cut us off from God, who is holy. Adam and Eve knew it. Isaiah knew it when he wrote in chapter 6 of his book, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He knew he was in trouble here. He was not fit to be in God's presence. And sometimes we won't approach the throne of God. We might not even want to approach the communion table or sit at his feet because we feel we're not fit to be there. But we must never stop meeting with God because we feel guilt. Because God didn't. God didn't leave us in that state of guilt. As we go on to read in Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God reached out to Isaiah. God reaches out to you in Christ. Jesus' death on the cross was a perfect answer to our guilt and shame problem. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we read, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sisma went on to write, quoting from him again, Jesus' crucifixion was such a perfect answer to our shame and guilt problem. He endured the cross, despising its shame. On the cross, our naked saviour took responsibility for our spiritual nakedness. And now, with the veil of the temple torn, we can approach our holy God without shame. To all who believe in him, he offers white clothes to cover our shameful nakedness. He not only covers our shame, he exchanges our shame for a glory that reflects his own. Jesus referred to his death as the hour of his glorification. In taking responsibility for our sin on the cross, he transformed the cross from a symbol of shame into a symbol of glory. What a transformation. Our guilt and shame must not be a reason for avoiding our meeting with God. The very opposite, in fact, is true. Our need for him is all the greater. Be assured that God will not meet with you as an overbearing, severe appraiser from senior management, but rather, as Christ described, a father who runs with overjoyed excitement to see his prodigal child returned. So come, approach the throne of God. You are invited Come to the communion table, which you thought yourself too unworthy. Come sit at his feet, for you are welcome. Come lay down your guilt and shame and pick up a heart of thankfulness. Come because Christ has made it possible.
My second reason for not meeting with God is expectancy is all but zero. You may be like me and grown up within the life of the church family. The result can be that everything becomes just a little routine. You know what the day will entail because that's what always happens. So shall it always be. You've been at Brighton Road for as long as you can remember. You know it's routine. So shall it always be. Whilst there is comfort in familiarity, so also lies the danger that our expectancy of God to do something new is chipped away. Our expectancy of God to be in our midst, almost an awkward inconvenience, because then we're not in control. God is, and who knows what he might ask of us then. Moses was classically just going about his routine of tending his father-in-law's flock. He had settled into a comfortable life and was not really in the mindset for that to be disrupted. I love the way that God presented Moses with something that piqued his interest, that aroused curiosity, aroused curiosity that, that didn't make sense, and it made him approach the burning bush. I don't think Moses had set out with any expectation of meeting with God that day. It was like any other. The idea of meeting with God was certainly not on the agenda. God can be so inconvenient, don't you find? He messes up our routine. Better then not to expect him at all, don't you think? That way, if we're honest, that way lies disobedience and a denial of God's sovereignty on our lives. And we do it at our peril. God called Moses when he least expected it to do amazing things for him for the sake of his people bound by slavery. I believe that at this point in Brighton Road's history, we must be expecting God to call us to serve him in enabling those here in Horsham in our families, wider world, to also be freed from slavery and find freedom in Christ and not simply following our usual BRBC routine. On an individual basis, I think sometimes we can find ourselves saying, oh, we didn't meet with God in that service, uh, but then why would we? So-and-so was leading or preaching. So-and-so was playing or singing. We must be careful that our lack of expectation doesn't lead us down the path of cynicism. It's as if we guard ourselves from disappointment by expecting little, so not surprised when we experience little, a self-fulfilling prophecy. We might dress up our lack of expectation as pragmatism or realism. We might say, well, that's just not how it is. Uh, Or, well, this is who I am and things like that don't happen to me. Thomas did much the same. He had no expectation of meeting with Jesus. Why should he? He had watched him die, for goodness sake. Even when those around him, those with whom he was closest, had met with the risen Jesus, he was cynical. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 20. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord! But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I think the modern equivalent of Thomas's reaction might be, yeah, right. 
There may be even an element of others might meet with God, but I don't. For some reason, Thomas was not with the others when Jesus came. And we can feel a bit like that. He comes and meets with others, but not me. And our expectation of meeting with God diminishes. Not expecting to meet with God becomes the norm, the presumed pattern, and the comfortable routine. It may be that your expectancy of meeting with God is low because, quite frankly, you doubt his existence. If you doubt there is a God, then the chances of meeting him are remote, or so you think. Just as God met with Thomas in his doubts and zero expectation, so he met with a confirmed atheist called C.S. Lewis. He wrote, C.S. Lewis wrote of his experience in Surprised by Joy. You must picture me, he says, in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. God will meet you even when your expectation of him doing so is at an all-time low. Even if you're resentful and scared at the prospect, as Lewis was. Lewis describes, describes himself as a prodigal who was brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. I'm quite encouraged by that. You might not expect to meet with God. You might do this to manage your expectations and stave disappointment. Or it could be because cynicism or scepticism has crept in. Whatever the reason, as with Moses, Thomas and Lewis, God can and will meet with you nonetheless. My third reason for not meeting with God is time. I haven't the time. I have so much on at the moment. I'll do that later when I have more time. As soon as I get through this, I'll make time for God. I think in my head, and some of them out loud, I've said all of these. Felix's story, in, uh, found in Acts 24, is a cautionary tale of one given the opportunity to be in relationship with Christ, but used time as an excuse not to. Starting at verse 24, I'm reading from the modern English version. After several days, when Felix arrived with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him speaking concerning faith in Christ. As he lectured about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was afraid and answered, For now, leave. When time permits, I will send for you. When time permits, I'll send for you. The bottom line here is that Felix felt convicted by what Paul was saying and he was afraid. <clears throat> Felix's family life was complicated, to say the least. Drusilla was his third wife, uh, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who was also the sister to Agrippa II and Bernice, who are mentioned in the following chapter and were thought to be having an incestuous relationship. Also, Felix and Drusilla's son tragically died in the eruption of Vesuvius, AD 79. Now, Whilst our lives may not be quite such the stuff of soap operas as Felix's, we all have busy lives. We all know we should spend time for God. And yet we're still prone to saying, as soon as I get through this, 
I'll make time for God. As soon as this week is over, I'll make time for God. When the kids get into school, as soon as they leave school, as soon as they leave home, when I retire, I'll have more time for God. And life slips by, and the things of God fade from view. No time to meet with God is is a lame excuse. We say it perhaps because, like Felix, we're afraid. We might have to change, do something, not do something. It becomes easier and saves face to be like Felix and say, we simply don't have the time at the moment. Or it could be that we say it and in so doing betray our priorities. If I'm going to be brutally honest with myself, sometimes I just don't have God as a priority. I don't care enough to turn the telly off and spend time with him. That, for me, can be the bottom line. Saying I haven't the time is a lame excuse, and if I'm honest with myself, I know it. My final reason for not meeting with God is thinking that you're spiritually not really there yet. That somehow everyone else has their spiritual journey sorted. To put it figuratively, everyone else, they are robust, strong giants of the river spiritual that swim purposefully. But you, you feel like a minnow that's rather confused by it all. You think to yourself, why would God want to meet with me, little old me? I'm not that important in the scheme of things. It makes sense that God wouldn't meet with me. Gideon was not the most spiritual of guys. When God first met him, he was threshing wheat in a wine press in fear of his enemies. We read in Judges 6, verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles that our fathers told us about? They said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Yet now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this strength of yours. Save Israel. From the control of Midian, have I not sent you? And he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in the father's house. Then the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. You see, it's all about perspective. Gideon saw himself as weak, small, the least capable of little. God saw him quite differently. God saw what he was capable of. Mighty man of valour was how he addressed him. He saw what he was capable of when he was working in his life. The real clincher is the promise in verse 16, then the Lord said, but I will be with you. It's that that makes all the difference. Each of us has our own insecurities Each of us could point to another and say, if I had his or her spiritual maturity, meeting God would be so much easier. When we do that, our perspective is all wrong, and ultimately that's the problem with all of these reasons for not meeting with God. 
our perspective is the ultimate issue with all of the barriers that we construct that prevent us from spending time with him. Right, this is the cheesy bit, okay? I know this is cheesy, but I've taken the starting letter from each of the reasons for not meeting with God that we've looked at this evening and created a word that hopefully is just a trigger, just a a way of remembering. G was guilt. Guilt. Then we had expectation is all but zero. E. Time. T. Spirituality, not not yet there. S. It's a bit dodgy, but it makes the word gets. Gets. So these are four reasons as to why we might not meet with God. And basically these reasons, in the vernacular, gets us nowhere. We don't meet with God as these reasons, guilt, expectations so low, time and self-imposed spiritual inadequacy, gets us in the wrong mindset. Why? Because they all start with ourselves. I'm too sinful. I'm not that sort of person. I'm too busy. I'm not good enough. We don't meet with God when we wallow in ourselves, just as it's difficult to see the sky when you stare at your navel. Let us take time to change perspectives. In a practical way, that could be meditating on his promises. Or as my old youth leader once wisely recommended to me, look up and reflect on all the times the word thirst is found in the Bible. To meet with God, we must seize present opportunities. Don't put it off. God so wants to meet with each one of us. To find time to meet with God, you may need to deal with known sin. Don't be afraid. God loves you and wants to take the burden of guilt that you feel from you. To meet with God, you might need to establish proper priorities. You're in a relationship with him. He's serious about you. What about you with him? I want to close by reading a poem that may be familiar to some of you. It's a favourite of mine. It's by George Herbert and is simply called Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I the unkind, ungrateful, oh, my dear, I I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and, smiling, did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says Love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says Love. And taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. <laughs>